the life of Ines Mejia shows how it's never too late to find one's calling. After nearly four decades of personal struggle, she found her passion on a nature excursion, falling in love with rare plants. She spent 13 years exploring South America, often alone. Ines discovered over 500 species, including a new genus of Asteraceae, and collected over 145,000 specimens. Ines was also known for her vivid and entertaining accounts of botanical exploration. Welcome to Sweet Defiance, the podcast where we pair delicious sweets with compelling stories of forgotten historic women who made great achievements in science. My name is Beatrice and I'll be your guide through the life and accomplishment of extraordinary individuals. I am Eva, the scientific mind behind this podcast, bringing expertise and knowledge to uncover the wonders of the natural world. Well, for this episode, I chose a beer from Mexico and we're going to drink it with some limes. Wow, wonderful. I think uh, having a cool and refreshing beer maybe would be the kind of thing that I would like to drink when I'm in the middle of the Amazon forest and it's very hot and sticky outside. Definitely. And it's a very down-to-earth drink, which also fits Ines. Cheers. Cheers. Mm, Refreshing. So let's get on to the episode. Let's do it. So Beatrice, we talk about a very special botanist today. I'm really glad we chose her. It's really interesting history. Absolutely. I'm also very intrigued by the fact that for once we don't have somebody who started in the sciences at a very, very early age, but uh, had her calling a bit later on which is a very interesting role model as well. Definitely, yes. She has a very interesting life story. And it all started in 1870, which was only five years after the American Civil War. So she grew up in Georgetown, which is close by Washington, D.C. today. The American Civil War, of course, one of the most defining moments in American history. And it resulted in significant changes. It ended slavery, it expanded federal power, and it reintegrated the southern states into the union. Also, it was a huge growth in the district's population in Georgetown and in Washington, D.C., and it included, of course, the freed slaves that now chose to live there. In 1868, so two years before Ines was born, the Congress granted the district's African-American male residents the right to vote in municipal elections. Women had to wait another 52 years for the same privilege. This is the background where she was born into. But much of Ines' life remains mysterious. But we do know that she was born into a very privileged family, which had estates in Mexico and the U.S. She attended private school and her parents moved a lot in the 1887, she chose to move to Mexico with her father for 10 years, so her parents separated and she went with her father. In 1909, then, she had a mental breakdown at age 39, and she was seeking treatment and medical care, which she found in San Francisco. She was in treatment there for the following 10 years. So you already see that this has been a long time in her life where she had nothing to do with uh, biology or botany at all. So she basically already lived a full grown-up life with all of its ups and downs and family and entrepreneurship before she even discovered an academic way of life. 
It was then in the treatment in San Francisco where she joined the Sierra Club and also their excursions into the mountains. Her interest in botany sparked. She was really interested in the plants, in the trees. During the same time, there was also a Mexican revolution going on. Since her heritage of father is Mexican, this also affected her. She had a very privileged family with estates in Mexico. This revolution were fought over issues of land ownership, social inequality and political corruption. This also affected her family. This Mexican economic system heavily favored small elite class, including large landowners and foreign corporations. So the majority of the population suffered from extreme poverty and exploitation. The revolution led to the drafting of a new constitution, which enshrined land reforms, labor rights and social reforms. And it also limited the power of the Catholic Church and asserted the rights of indigenous communities. It's also during this time that her parents died. We don't know when exactly. She inherited a lot of estates, a lot of property, which she sold. So now she had the means to live independently the way she wanted. She followed then her newfound passion for plants and she became a member of the California Botanical Society in 1915. Only six years later, she actually enrolled in the University of Berkeley to study botany. She enrolled uh, at the age of 51. Botanizing was actually a very popular pastime in the Victorian era. Many women collected plants. They had those pressing collections of ferns and white flowers. Some women in the late 19th century were also able to secure jobs in botany. It has become really fashionable, but especially in Europe in the early 19th century and not in that magnitude in the US. Few female American professional botanists uh, existed in the 19th century. Many females studied it as a hobby to collect plants. Now, question is, why would you actually collect so many plants? What's the use of that? And we must remember that Ines lived in a time before genetic sequencing. So when you wanted to understand the evolution of plants or their relationships, what you could do is look at similarities between plants. Every new plant species that you discovered, every new specimen could be one more piece of this puzzle in the big picture of plant evolution. And of course, you can find a lot of plants say in Europe or in the United States. But if you want to dig deeper, you need to go to places that are very, very rich in plant life. And those places are many cases, say primal forests, jungles. And for obvious reasons, you don't find them in Europe and the US alone. So you need to venture out and look there and you would find the very, very rich plant life to study. And this is exactly what Ines did in 1925. She went on her first trip to Mexico with Roxana Ferris. She was the curator of the Dudley Herbarium in Stanford University. They went together, but they didn't get along quite well due to their different personalities, as it is stated. And this would actually become the norm for Ines. She often doesn't get along with other people. She preferred to travel on her own. It's also documented that Ines could charm new acquaintances upon meeting them, but that she could be difficult, temperamental person to work with. And during this first trip, she also falls off a cliff. She injured her hand and fractured her ribs. But this did not stop her by any means. She wrote that she found her purpose in life. She wrote that I have a job where I produce something real and lasting. The trip resulted in over 500 specimens and over 50 new species that the women found. When she came back, 
that's when she met Nina Floyd Bracey, who's called Bracey by her friends, and we're going to call her Bracey as well. She would play an important role in Ines' life. Bracey worked as an assistant at the Herbarium of the California Academy of Sciences, and Ines asked her for help with her collection that she brought back. Ines did visit some courses in botany, but according to Bracey, Ines couldn't sit still. She wasn't the type of person that could actually attend lectures. She wanted to get out to see and do things instead. Bracey she described her now being in charge of the collection as the blind seeing for the blind since she, Bracey herself, was not yet an expert in our field either. Still, she set on to work on Ines' vast but very disorganized herbarium. So Ines did prefer to do the collecting, the adventuring, and letting other people do the paperwork, the identifying, and the preserving. Bracey recognized this disorder in the collection and started reorganizing, for which Ines was very grateful. On the other hand, though, Ines' field notes were very detailed, very descriptive, vivid, and even entertaining. So uh, it was well illustrated with photos as well, so she took really good care of her field notes. From 1920 on, Bracey labeled specimens and sent them to experts for identification, developing a large network of correspondence. So now we should maybe talk about how do we identify plants and how do they get their names? As you have mentioned, Beatrice, so the specimens were sent to experts for identification. Again, in this time, there was no genetic sequencing. So what you usually did was comparing the plants you just found to the vast collection you already had and the established order of things of inheritance um, that had been proposed at the time which necessarily also means that people didn't always agree on this taxonomy of new specimens so on the say line of inheritance that was not always clear people didn't always agree but once you have established a taxonomy, whether people agree on it or not, you have a very, very clear system of how you then call this plant. So usually you have different words for that. You start with the genus of the plant, which could be something like rose-like plants, for example, apples fall into that category, but also roses themselves. And then you add a species name to that to, to further distinguish. And now with things like apples and roses, we have seen them for centuries and people have given them names already all over the world in many, many different languages. So at some point, botanists agreed on using Latin names internationally so that every plant has one specific identifier name to actually not mix up all the plants in all the languages. But it also means that if you discover a new species that may be also somewhat similar to something that has been found previously, it's hard to come up with a name because there's maybe not much of a cultural story behind it, or at least not one of the culture where the botanists came from. And then you need some way to actually tag on the label to that plant. And one way this is done often is that you tag on the name of the person who actually first described that plant. And since Ines discovered a lot of species um, sent in many, many specimens for identification, there are quite some plants who now are called Mejia, so something, something, Mejia. Yeah, that's a really nice legacy for her, which still lives on. 
So her collection was now in safe hands with Bracey, who took care of all this organizing and identifying, and Ines could plan her next trip. There's a short book filled with interviews of Bracey, and an entire chapter of the book just delves into the personality of Ines and her unpredictable moods. One particular incident involving Beryl Couts, a graduate student in zoology at the University of California, Berkeley, stands out. Ines had a habit of inviting Beryl to visit her, and on one sunny afternoon, the trio, including Bracey, they decided to enjoy the pleasant weather, indulge in a picnic outside and eat some sandwiches. Little did they know that this would take an unexpected turn. So Beryl, known for her playful nature, couldn't resist teasing Ines. Ines' reaction was immediate and violent. In a sudden burst of emotion, she reached for a large knife and without warning, stabbed Beryl in the leg. Luckily, the wound was not severe and Beryl would eventually recover. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a reaction. <laughs> that's a reaction. Very volatile. Mm -hmm. And Bracey, of course, witnessed this and she insisted that Ines would make amends and urged her to purchase new stockings because Beryl didn't have much money and she persisted that Ines would personally give them to Beryl and not make her do it. So a symbolic act to acknowledge the harm that she caused. And this episode of violence, although very brief, characterized Ines' uh, persona. Also, maybe worth mentioning that stockings weren't as cheap back then as they are now. I think they were still made out of silk or nylon, which was still considered a luxury product. So now Ines went on her second expedition, but this time she chose a completely different uh, destination. She chose Alaska. But once she was there, she didn't seem to be interested at all in the landscape or the local plants. So she didn't gather much plants at all. And it was clear to her then that she preferred South America, which she also connected more to because of her heritage. So when she came back, she planned her, planned her next trip to South America, where she crossed paths with Agnes Chase. Agnes Chase was an agrostologist, which is someone who studies grass and grass expert at the United States National Herbarium at Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. And the women ascended together to Pico de Bandera. They camped in the grasslands near the summit and Agnes described the grasses were more beautiful than diamonds, which of course fits her being an expert of grass. <laughs> <laughs> no bias there. <laughs> but again, they were both apparently dominant personalities, so they soon went on their own ways. Ines spent almost a year in Vicosa. She only took day trips away from there and she decided then to travel up the Amazon. Bracey noted that Ines did not collect that many samples as she herself or any other botanist for that matter could or maybe would have collected. So instead of just staying there and gathering all the plants she could, she wanted to move on, push forward and see what's around the next corner instead of staying in one place. And this traveling up the Amazon would be her greatest adventure yet, but also her last. Do, do, do. <laughs> so she, she wrote in her journal that there was no end to the collecting in these beautiful mountains and the bulk of my collection was made in this region. She enjoyed traveling alone. She rode horseback. She wore trousers and she preferred to sleep outside, even though if beds or indoor accommodations were available. And again, she grew up in a very privileged family. So this is a huge contrast. Her journals are famous because of her vivid descriptions and her storytelling, which is why I'm going to read a short passage from it. 
As I had never been in this region before, I found the luxuriance of the vegetation actually embarrassing. It was hard to know whether to begin to collect and still harder to know when to stop. Mauro, my mozo, and I would ride out along a road and then cut off over some little trail that led towards the higher mountains. The guava trees, which grow wild, were in fruit and we would stop to eat and to fill our pockets when we came across them. Ferns were very abundant, growing along the trail banks and in every little ravine. The wild fig tree here grows to huge proportion. As the green fruit hung high, Mauro deftly lassoed some fruiting branches for me. So this really shows how much he enjoyed this adventuring and uh, traveling. Yeah, and also in what the poetic language that she actually wrote. I can only recommend reading her diaries. It's published in a book. And during this travel, she soon became ill and she was obliged to return home to seek medical care. They diagnosed her with lung cancer and she was forced to stay in the US. She died within a month on July 12, 1938. Towards the end of her life, though, she was often also invited to lectures on her travels and to talk about accounts of her trips, which were printed in botanical society magazines and journals. So botanists all over the world knew her name, even though she never even finished her bachelor's degree because she couldn't stay in one place long enough. <laughs> she left much of her estate to the Save the Redwoods League and the Sierra Club, and that enabled them to keep hiring Bracey and that uh, secured her position. The Sierra Club printed that her rare courage, which enabled her to travel much of the time alone in lands where few would dare to follow. So they were really impressed by what she did. Her collection now is in the New York Botanical Garden. So her collection is still alive and still growing. And of course, a lot of them are named after her. In recognition of her significant contributions, 50 species have been named after her, including the daisy Mechiantus Mexicanus. So even a double name for her. In conclusion, that was her impressive life. And as we said, she started at the age of 55. So it's never too late to find your passion in life. Of course, she had a lot of money to do whatever she pleased. <laughs> it always helps. But it also means you don't need to decide on your passions at the age of 16. You can really have a life first and then it's not over once you're 50. You can still go and have adventures. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> You can find our sources in the show notes. If you enjoy the show and want to help us grow, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. 